imagine what a family could and perhaps should look like. And so in the 60s, we watched shows like The Addams Family. All right. And at first glance, the show appears to be a little bit more than a dark comedy with monster-like characters, but it's actually a satirical inversion of an ideal family that intentionally breaks the mold of the cleavers from Leave it to Beaver. And then more than that, part of the television trend in the 60s included shows like Bewitched and The Monsters, whereby these television shows began to depict traditional families composed of non-traditional characters. There was also The Andy Griffith Show and helped audience explore the, the concept of single parent families. And though these families were still patriarchal and, and resulted, you know, the, de- the, the, the reason they were single, usually the result was death and not divorce. This also had another show come on the scene, which was My Three Sons. And it helped viewers now see a different kind of paradigm when it came to family, right in the 60s. And then the television shows of the 70s, you know, they, they had a whole lot of cultural mirroring and the, reflecting the, the ways that Americans, and, and, and we sort of got along with this, the Canadians as well, were already thinking about family. And again, the primary example of the 70s is the Brady Bunch, right? And, uh, you know, which was conceived after Sherwood Schwartz. He read a Los Angeles Times that said 30% of the marriages in the U.S. have a child from a previous marriage. And so the, the character of Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch was a widower, um, but Schwartz wanted Carol Brady to be depicted as a divorcee when he first wrote the script, but the network objected to it, and they wouldn't let him do this. So Carol's marital past was always left open. That was never addressed. And so the Brady Bunch told us that, that the narrow definition of, uh, that they had for family wasn't normal anymore. And it told us that divorced or widowed people could take pieces of their traditional families and form new families, and we just accepted it as we went along. After all, you know, the Bradys seemed about as normal as any family could be, right? African-American families arrived on the scene in the 1970s in, in sitcoms like The Cosby Show and The Jeffersons. And uh, they challenged the stereotype of uh, black families as being poor. And additionally, the series featured the Jeffersons. If you ever watched it, it was, used to be one of my favorite shows. Featured an interracial couple with the characters of Tom and Helen Willis. Again, scandalous in some get, uh, parts, but a reflection of what was happening in our society. And there was a, a, a series of progressive enforced. Uh, um, the, the progressive ways of this TV show actually forced people to think, to, to move on up to new ways of thinking about family. And then, of course, if you're into the 70s, you couldn't but address all in the family and Archie Bunker with his outlook on life, as scandalous as it may be. Now, the 80s, a single father and a former Major League Baseball player takes a job working as a living nanny and a housekeeper for Angela Bauer and a single mom and successful business executive, and that show is called Who's the Boss? And uh, it should have been a scandalous concept, but it wasn't at the time. And the, the series itself, although a comedy, explored the sexual tensions that arise amongst cohabitating people and the challenges uh, and the notions of traditional gender roles. And so Angela and Tony and their children technically aren't related, but it's clear that they are a family. Interesting, yeah? And that one, uh, you know, they're sort of lovable, but yet non-traditional. And then, of course, we had this wacky cult classic called Full House. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, you had Danny Tanner's wife. She's killed by a drunk driver, so he lists his best friend and his brother-in-law to help him raise his kids. And it's a full house, and it's the story of three men raising three girls. And through it, it seemed to be totally innocuous. Then the sitcom then begins to open the door to conversations about same-gender parents. And we move into the 90s, and the shows seem less interested in portraying non-traditional families than actually exploring dysfunction of traditional families. And so shows like Married with Children or The Simpsons, right, they diverge from the whole leave it to beaver concept, and they undermine the idea that the family, you know, must operate smoothly at all time. And despite their controversial natures when they came out, audiences tuned into Married with, with Children for a decade, and together they breathed really a sigh of relief from this exaggerated depiction of their own messy families. So what we were seeing on TV was almost a mirror of what was going on in our own homes. In the 90s, Ellen DeGeneres played the first gay or lesbian television character to come out of the, air, uh, out of the closet on air. And this episode of Ellen, it actually aired in April of 1997, was one of the highest rated, but conversely, it created the show's eventual cancellation. It, it opened the door for society to talk about things that were unmentionable before. Television shows began to explore the issues of, of sexuality in a sitcom fashion. And in some ways, Will and Grace sort of picked up where Ellen left off. And, and this show's cultural impact lies in its ability to normal, normalize a contentious issue. And so, you know, through principal characters, Will Truman and Jack Farland, although they were openly gay on the show, they didn't force the issue. And it sort of made audiences forget that they were dealing with gay characters. The hit show that might be the most progressive show to actually ever garner such a high level of success because it takes all the non-traditional family elements of the last 60 years and it crams them into a, sim a simple sitcom and it's modern family. And so you have Jay and Gloria and they give us the divorcees and a blended family and a biracial component to what's going on. And, and Mitchell and Cameron, they give us the gay couple and Claire and Phil provide us with a strong woman and submissive husband in addition to the dysfunction of a traditional family. And taken together, modern family then embodies the richly diverse definition of the family held by people today. And yet modern family, when you watch it, it's strangely conservative. And it doesn't grandstand on controversial issues. The characters are highly relatable, even to traditionalists. And this combination of non-traditional elements presented in a non-threatening way has potential to reshape cultural opinions and attitudes in very profound ways. And like many before at Modern Family, is a sitcom about a non-traditional family that really values family. This is our culture. Now, add to it, there are numerous shows that have impacted us in a variety of ways that I didn't get into that sort of divine family. Shows like The Odd Couple or uh, Family Ties, Three's Company, Golden Girls, Roseanne, Bob's Burgers, and the one that I particularly like that not too many people know about, it's called Life in Pieces. Watch it. But when I say family, there's also a number of other shows that reflect the feeling that I've, I've left out in our discussion today that although they would call it family, it, it's, it's not like mom and dad and son and daughter, but shows like Seinfeld and Friends and Cheers and The Office, The 70s Shows, The Bob Newhart Show, Community, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and of course, The Big Bang Theory. So I go to the 
dictionary to figure out what a family is. What's the dictionary going to say? And it says this, Webster's defines it as a group of individuals living under one roof and usually under one head, household. Second definition is a group of persons, commonly ancestry, a clan, or a people, a group of peoples regarded as deriving from a common stock, sounds like soup, um, or a race. A group of people united by certain convictions or a common affiliation, fellowship, the staff of a high official as the president. And it's interesting to note that as you go on, the idea of a traditional family doesn't get listed until the fifth point where it actually says this. It says, the basic unit in society traditionally consisting of two parents rearing their children. Also, any various social units differing from but regarded as equivalent to the traditional family. Interesting. So, in keeping with the cultural theme, you know, Webster's is one, but you have to go to the Urban Dictionary. Like, you just have to. And I decided to see what the Urban Dictionary had to say about the family, and it was bizarre. It was bizarre, and it was gut-wrenching all at the same time, because one definition listed said, a bunch of people who hate each other and eat dinner together. <laughs> people you love and love you back, not necessarily blood or biological, but you trust them, and they trust you, and they take care of you, and you take care of them. Another one said, the close relationship among a body of human beings through blood, usually annoying and invasive around holidays. <laughs> Another one said, insane people that made it and decide to have their kids to torture and scar mentally just to keep their bloodline going with that extra zest for life. But interesting enough, there's an addition that reads, everyone in my family is either angry, psycho, or dead. You've got to remember, in the Urban Dictionary, people upload their definitions. So this stuff is profound in, in my mind as I'm researching this. Another one said, a group of people usually of the same blood, but don't have to be, who genuinely love, trust, care about, and look out for each other. Not to be mistaken with relatives sharing the same household who hate each other. And again, that addition that was thrown under their real family is a bondage that cannot be broken by any means. That's a cultural reflection when we say the word family. That's what's coming to people's minds. And so when we say to have the topic, help my family needs healing, everybody's walking in through these doors with a whole different kind of preconceived ideas. One definition reads, a group of people that can be related to you, however, do not need to be as long as you love them like they were blood. Also, a group of people that love each other but sometimes hurt each other for stupid reasons. Families are supposed to care about each other and love each other, but they keep hurting each other and doing each other wrong, so maybe they don't love each other after all. See, family can be a paradox. It's a place of love and support. It's, it should be a place that's a haven in a heartless world, as one sociologist put it, but it can be a place of violence and a family can be a place of abuse, and a family can be a place of despair. And something that many of us consider to be the most important, precious thing in our lives can also, for other people, can turn out to be absolutely the most painful. And we need to acknowledge that and recognize that when we start talking about the issues that we will be over the next three months. When asked about, in a recent survey about what hurts the most, many people responded family challenges. And I think when we think about family challenges, there are really four major biggies in family challenges. There's the, the, the concept of singleness. That's always an issue. There's the concept of marriage. There's children. And there's parents. 
Those are the four majors. And the stark reality is that our, our family issues also consist of many other things like separation and divorce and infidelity and infertility and grief and loss and money and communication. And the list goes on and on and on. And maybe there is something in your life that's not on this list. Then let, you know, send me your topic. Just my contacts in the weekly. Send me your topic. And, and maybe, maybe there's a chance that we will ad- address it. Oh, you don't know my story. You don't know my stuff. You're right. I don't. You know, we're doing a thing on mental illness on, on Father's Day. That, that Sunday, we have uh, Joanne Goodwin coming. She's going to speak Sunday. She's going to talk about mental illness. But on Saturday, Saturday morning, we're going to be doing a, a, um, a, a seminar, two, two-part seminar. And one of it is also doing mental illness with t- teenagers. It's a free seminar. It's available to you, but we're also inviting the community. All you got to do is when we get the, the stuff out in your hand, just register online so that you know, we know you're coming so we can feed you. Isn't that awesome that our church just loves to feed people for free? But we got to talk about the issues, and she's going to talk on Sunday morning. You know, God, the church, you, and mental illness. We have to address these issues. We've got to talk about these issues. This is something that affects all of us in different aspects. And so the question is, well, Jerry, is there hope? And my answer is, yes, there's hope. There's hope in Christ, and I believe there's hope in the local church. And so as we go through this series, we'll see that we have all these prayer requests for families and and for ourselves. We'll see uh, also that dysfunction in families is nothing new. You're not alone. In fact, Scripture will show us that dysfunction started in the garden, and yet God himself loved his dysfunctional family and chose to work with them and through them in spite of their failures. So although it's not a new word, most of us have never heard the term dysfunctional really until you know, a, a few years ago, it's this last 10 to 15 years, it, it has become that buzzword, right? Um, and it's a buzzword of our mixed up generation. It's, a, it's thrown around way too easy. And yet the dictionary defines the noun dysfunctional or dysfunction as a disordered or impaired functioning of a bodily system or organ. And in layman terms, it basically says that the body doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But that's not how we use the word today. Most often when we hear the term dysfunctional, it's always applied to the human relationship concept, right? We hear of dysfunctional families, we hear of dysfunctional marriages, and in all cases, dysfunctional describes intimate human relationships that don't work the way that they're supposed to work. So that tells me then these relationships we find ourselves, there, there is actually some sort of ideal, right? Go to your favorite bookstore, you'll find dozens of books with the word dysfunctional in the title, Secrets of a Dysfunctional Family, Healing a Dysfunctional Marriage, Overcoming Your Dysfunctional Childhood, Dysfunctional Relationships, Where They Come From, How to Change Them. There is no end to what you can find. And we're quick to tag that term dysfunction to to our families because a dysfunctional family one is where there, there is a major breakdown in the basic relationship within the family so that the family itself can no longer function properly. So have you ever wondered if you have a dysfunctional family? Well, today, i got a bunch of stuff to put into your hands. So you can pull out your phones, you pull out your notepad, and just start writing, because here's five areas. Five symptoms of whether or not you have a dysfunctional family. The first one is estrangement. You know, we're family members who avoid other family members. The other one is anger, and it could be expressed or repressed. The other one is lack of trust. It is seen in faulty patterns of communication. There's also deception, the inability to speak the truth to other family members, or unhealthy 
secrecy and in, in, in the sense of, you know, their refusal to face the truth. And the fact is, is that you actually, and then some of you are going, oh no, my family's dysfunctional. Listen, no, 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 no. Because you're going to find one or more of these traits in healthy families as well from time to time. But dysfunctional families adopt these traits as the normal patterns of life. So the concept of a dysfunctional family is really not new at all. The idea goes actually right back to the beginning of time. After all, the real cause of dysfunctionality is at the entrance of sin into the human race. And as Christians, we go back to Genesis and we look at that. And so ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, every family from that point has had some dysfunction to one degree or another. And as long as you've had sin, even the best relationships will be less than perfect. And then there's no such thing, and hear me clearly, there's no such thing as a perfect family. There never has been, there never will be, as long as sin is a part of the human race. And sin distorts everything that we do and that we say. It colors life so that no marriage, no family, no parent-child relationship is truly perfect. There's always this tension. And having said that, it's not surprising that when we open the Bible, we don't have to look very far to find dysfunctional family relationships. You consider the very first family in Genesis, right? The first couple of chapters, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They blame each other, right? They blame each other for their own disobedience. You go on, you take a look at their children. Cain murdered his brother Abel. You go on and you see Noah, he had, he had his three sons, and one of his sons disgraced him by exposing his nakedness. And then there's Abraham and Sarah, and what does Abraham do? Well, he lies about his wife. He calls her her sister. His nephew Lot turns out to be a major disappointment. There's a whole lot of tension going on. Consider King David. David, great historical warrior, great king, a great poet, but as a father, as a husband, the guy's an absolute failure. And he's a bad example of sexual purity. He was, there was a rape in his family. He doesn't do anything about it. He just stewed on it. And actually, Dave, he didn't do, really do a lot, of whole, a lot of parenting. He just let things go in his family to the point where his son Absalom turns against him and his kingdom crumbles. And as that happens, so does his family. And the family continued, but outside of what was considered normal. And when the family ignored the problems, it all boiled out in David's relationships. And they crossed boundaries of what pleased God. And that's why we see this in our own families. As sin has entered the world, as it enters into our relationships, we need to pray for healing of our families maybe of ourselves. In Genesis, we find more examples of familial dysfunction, like I said, with Abraham and Sarah. And actually, it begins with Sarah unable to conceive, and Abraham sleeps then with Hagar, the, the female servant, Sarah's maidservant. So in this process, Hagar conceives, she bears a son, and they name the son Ishmael. And the resulting relationship causes now so much strain between Sarah and Hagar. Eventually, Sarah gets pregnant. She gives birth to a boy. They name him Isaac, at which point Abraham now is caught between two women, which I can't imagine. One's enough. <clears throat> and Sarah's complaints are so over the top it forces I, Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away for good. You know, what's going on here? And not only do Sarah and Hagar not get, her along, get along, neither do Ishmael 
and Isaac. And this getting along, if you do the, the familiar you know, family tree, we see that this get, not getting along still exists today between the Jews and the Arabs. Because Isaac is the father of the Jewish na nation, and Ishmael is considered the father of the Arab nations, and they're still at war. And it goes back to here. So back to our story, Isaac marries Rebekah. After 20 years, she gives birth to Jacob and Esau. But the boys are very different. Now, Isaac, now interesting, his father prefers Esau, while mom loves Jacob. And the family favoritism isn't hidden from the two boys. And these two boys become rivals within their family. Now, sibling rivalry is a fact of life. Face it, I got four boys. I know exactly what we're talking about. I'm still the alpha male. I'll just say that. But even in the best of families, you know, the dysfunctional families is when rivalry becomes the defining fact of family life. And that's what happens with Jacob and Esau because of their vastly different personalities and because of their parental favoritism, they are destined to be rivals and sometimes really bitter enemies is what happens as long as they live. And when we come to Genesis chapter 27, there are three generations of family dysfunction that, you know, are about to come to a fearful climax. And those pattern of unhealthy relationships ultimately will destroy Jacob's own family. And what you see at the beginning of this chapter is a family that, while not working very well, is at least staying together. Doesn't that sound familiar? We're not working very well, but we're staying together. By the end of the chapter, the family has been blown apart all for once. And there are four characters in the story. Isaac the father, Rebecca the mother, and the two sons, Jacob and Esau. But note very carefully, if you take the time and read the story, that <clears throat> all four are presented in a negative light in the chapter. And these four people never appear together at the same time. We begin in Genesis 27, verses 1 to 4, with Isaac believing that he's about to die. His, his fondest dream is to ensure that before he dies, that his son Esau will obtain a cherished blessing. Now, Isaac, he's old and he's frail and, uh, you know, he's basically blind. So he, he's calling in Esau and he sends him out to go hunt some wild game for him. And his intentions are very clear. Isaac still wants Esau to have the rights of the firstborn after, after he passes away. And so in sending him out to hunt for game, he is asking him to do what a firstborn son should do. Take his place as the head, as the provider of the family. And so once his son had prepared the meal, Isaac would then be free to give him a blessing. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, ordinarily, nothing's wrong with what I just said. Nothing would be wrong, but God, if we read back a little bit, God already spoke and declared before the boys were born that the older will serve the younger. And that meant that Jacob should be treated then as the firstborn. And throughout all the years, Isaac had evidently never been willing, and this is an interesting aspect, Isaac was never willing to accept God's choice of Jacob over Esau. So now, he, at last, he plans to give Esau the blessing. It should go to Jacob, because that's what God wanted, but he's going to bless Esau instead. It's a deliberate defiance to God's will. And in doing this, Isaac now makes four mistakes. He's truly, uh, he's trying to overturn what God had said. 
He's ruled completely by his senses. He ignores the fact that Esau is spiritually unqualified for the blessing. You, you see that in the characters of the individuals. And he conspires in secret with Esau to hide his plan from his family, from Rebekah and from Jacob. So this is all done behind the scenes. So we see him that, you know, that, that none of this really matters to Isaac, that he wants his favorite son to have the blessing, and he has to connive to make it happen, and that's exactly what he will do. And if he has to deceive his wife and his other son, then so be it, because this is what's going to happen. I don't care what God said. This is what's going to happen, but the plan doesn't work because <laughs> I love this because Rebecca is secretly listening to Isaac and Esau. And so now what do we have? We have more deception, more mistrust, more secrecy going out there. And you can continue to read in chapter 27. And then she, she repeats to Jacob what she overheard. And then she cooks up a scheme on her own, which again has more deception, more secrecy. And her plan is simple. Jacob, come here, come here. Go kill two choice goats. And, and uh, you know, I'm going to cook up a tasty meal for your father. And you'll serve it to your father. You'll pretend to be Esau, and, and you're going to trick your father into giving you the blessing. This is better than all the soap operas that we have going on. And then when Jacob hears this amazing plan, he only has one reservation. So his mom is telling him, we're going to deceive the old man, and this is what he says, well, what if he touches me? Now, it meant in a good touch. Not bad touch, but good touch. You're with me. So evidently, Jacob has no um, objection to the idea of deceiving his father. He just wants to know, what do I do if I get caught? And we had to understand, the boys were both very different physically. One was very hairy. One was like, had about as much hair as an egg. You know, you, you got me there. So you got to take a look at his words. I would appear to be deceiving him. Well, that's actually quite wrong, uh, my friend. Jacob, uh, you wouldn't appear to be deceiving him. You would be deliberately deceiving him. And there's a vast difference between appearance and reality when deception's involved. Isn't that true in our own lives? But Jacob doesn't seem to appreciate that point. He tries to soften it. And then he says, but a curse will come upon me if I'm caught. And then Rebecca replies that, you know, basically the words of all mothers throughout history, just do what I say, right? And clearly, Rebecca is this dominant leader in the family. And I would summarize that her personality with these simple four words, that she's strong, she's resourceful, she's de de decisive, and she's cunning. That's who she is. And, and she's the prime mover in the story. And it seems that she's also the prime mover in the family as well. And it appears that Isaac is, sort of has abdicated his spiritual position of leadership in the family. And, you know, who thought of this deception? Well, it was Rebecca. Who said, go get the food? It was Rebecca. Who said, put on the goatskin, make yourself look hairy? It was Rebecca. Who said, you know, let the blame fall on me? That's Rebecca. Who says, leave, leave home till Esau cools off after your brother finds out? It's Rebecca. At every point, it, she is in charge. And she always has an answer for every question and a solution for every problem. So it's not maybe the most honest you know, the, the, you read the story and you have to ask yourself the question, if this is so blazingly wrong, then why, why did Jacob do it? Hear me very carefully. I think it's because he was under pressure from his mom. Also, he wanted that blessing so bad. He believed the end justified the means. 
And finally, because he didn't respect his father, I think is really the ultimate thing. And I, I think Jacob said to himself, you know, God wants me to have this blessing. I'm pretty sure he knew about it beforehand. So if I have to cheat a little bit to get it, well, then that's all right, because then God will understand. It's interesting, because we justify sin in, even in our own lives, and we see it happening here. And, you know, Jacob is half right. God did want him to have the blessing, and God did understand what he was doing, but that didn't make Jacob's actions right. And so Jacob, he goes in, he's wearing goat skins, you know, to hide the baldness, you know, uh, prepared by his mother. He carries this tasty food to his father. You know, Isaac, he's old, he, he, he's blind, but he senses something's wrong, right? And his mind tells him that Esau couldn't have gotten into the wild game so fast. There's something wrong. How, how did you get the meal here? Like, there is no takeout at this time. How did you get the meal here? And, and there's something wrong in your voice. And look how Jacob deceives his father. He uses deliberate deception. He goes, I am Esau, your firstborn. He then blasphemes. He, he says, the Lord your God gave me success. Pulled the God card right there. Goes on, you know, repeated deception. Are you really my son, Esau? I am, he replied. Then there's this dishonest intimacy. So he went to him and he kissed him. So like he's... He's playing the part. He's playing the role. And then there's misleading details. And Isaac gets the smell of his clothes, right? And it pulls him tight to smell his clothes. And this shouldn't surprise us because this is what happens whenever you set off on a path of deception. You know, this follows whenever you say, well, it doesn't matter how we do it. Well, Jacob's lies are bound to happen to, because he decided that the end justifies the means. So he starts one lie, he continues the other one, and that soon leads to another one and then another. And finally, you got to keep on lying to, to cover up your previous lies. And in any case, whatever happens, Isaac, you know, sets his doubts aside and he gives Jacob, you know, thinking that it's Esau, he gives him the blessing. And the blessing involves basically three things. There's a personal prosperity. There was a, this preeminence of who he was and the protection by God. Three simple things on his life. And so now what happens is that Jacob now receives this blessing from Isaac. And this blessing was sort of revealed back in, in previous chapters and how important it was. And yet on another note in this scenario, what, you know, who's deceiving whom when you think about it? Because on one hand, Jacob is definitely deceiving his father Isaac, right? However, Isaac thinks Jacob is really Esau. More deception, right? It's crazy. And he thinks he's deceiving Jacob by giving the blessing to Esau. And both intend to deceive the other, only Jacob succeeds. And the most amazing point is that through this craziness of family and this act of deception, God's will is done. Why? Well, because God's choice, which was Jacob, did in fact end up with the blessing. That doesn't justify the deception but it does demonstrate, now listen very carefully, how God works through the weaknesses of sinful people to accomplish his purposes. And when you look at the story in that light, and you take a step back and you see all the, the soap opera drama that's going on there, you actually see that it's a story of the sovereignty of God. And it, it, 
you keep reading in Genesis, and it reminds me of the words that Joseph uttered many years later, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so both Isaac and Jacob had less than noble motives, but God somehow overruled their bad motives to ensure that his will is ultimately done. Now Jacob has what he wanted all along because he, he obtained it through a fraudulent means. But if you keep reading, you see that he pays a heavy price. We don't even think about that, but he does. Because after Isaac finishes blessing Jacob, the real Esau comes in to Jacob and, and Jacob says, well, who are you? And he goes, I am Esau. And the Bible says that Isaac trembled violently, which means that this old man shook uncontrollably because the shocking truth hit home of what he just did. And that Jacob had deceived him. His own son deceived him. And in a blinding flash of insight, he realized, what he just did and two facts hit him immediately number one the kid deceived him and number two that blessing that he gave to the kid is gone forever and once the blessing was given and this is old testament structure once the blessing was given it was like a force of legal contract it couldn't be revoked it was already given and that's what isaac means when he says i blessed him and indeed he will be blessed in verse 33 he couldn't take it back and so now the full weight of what took place has hits esau and when esau hears his dad say that he bursts out with this bitter cry and he says to his father father bless me too bless me too and so you see the passion and you see the brokenness in this family. And Esau said, you know, isn't he rightfully named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He goes on, he says, he took my birthright, which was an earlier story, earlier story and now he takes my blessing. You know, meaning basically, look, at my brother's lived up to his name. He's a true Jacob. In other words, his name meant cheater by nature. And uh, that became a picture of his basic nature. This guy was a cheat. And he's willing to justify anything to get whatever he wanted in life. How many, how many people do we know like that? And before you feel too sorry for Esau, ask yourself who caused the problem. Because ultimately, it started because Esau despised his own birthright. Remember, if you knew the Bible story, you know, he's so hungry, he'll sell his birthright as inheritance for a bowl of soup. But if he had valued that properly... Jacob would have never tricked him. And so there was just, just craziness from there. And we're almost at the end of the story. And at Esau's request, Isaac does give him a blessing. But it's clearly inferior to Jacob's. In verse 41, it tells us that Esau held a grudge against Jacob and even said to my, himself that when his father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. And I think when you read the story and you put that kind of passion in there, if this is all understandable, who can blame this guy for being angry? You know, his brother cheated him twice. And maybe you're an Esau in your family. Maybe you have a Jacob in your family and you can relate to what's going on here. And at this point, what happens? Mom steps back into the picture, right? She tells Jacob, you, be, you need to run for your life because Esau is going to kill you. Okay? So one's the outdoor guy, the other one is not so much. And the outdoor guy is going to kill the not so much guy, right? And she advises him to go visit her, her, her brother, her uh, uncle Laban in Haran, which is about 500 miles away. And eventually Esau's anger cool, cools down, but Rebecca would keep her plan and send a message for Jacob. And, you know, mama knew her boys, didn't she? The guy's going to cool off. We'll get Jacob there. And she knows Esau has a temper, but that's going to fade. It's okay. And Esau wasn't kind of the guy to keep grudges. We'll get along. It's okay. Um, you know, he's quick to anger, but he's also fairly quick to forgive. And... 
you know, Rebecca thought that, you know, Jacob would return home for a few weeks or months, but little did she know that Jacob would stay with Uncle Laban for 20 long years. But that's a whole nother story. You know, it was interesting that she had to actually justify sending Jacob away. And so she tells Isaac, her husband, that she wants Jacob to find a wife among their own people. And not from wrong, the pagan, the Hittites. And so in effect, she's giving Isaac a cover story. Again, just more deceit. And Isaac agrees. He calls Jacob to his side. And he repeats the blessing that he gave him. And then he sends him off to Haran to find a wife. What do you have when you stand back and take this whole story as it is? What you have, actually, is basically a dysfunctional family that, in the beginning, is barely holding it together. And in the end, this family actually collapses under the weight of deception and dishonesty. You know, in the beginning, Jacob didn't have a blessing. In the end, he does. Jacob got what he wanted because he got it through a fraudulent means, but it cost him his own family, and his family is destroyed. When you continue to read the story, we find that Jacob, even though he has this blessing, he ends up penniless, he's homeless, he's fleeing for his life, he's estranged from his brother, he's humiliated his father, and as far as we know, he never saw his mother Rebecca again. Because Jacob left, and Esau was the guy who stayed at home. Jacob forfeited all the material prosperity that would have been his through the inheritance, and he left it for his brother. But he got what he wanted. But he lost his own family in that process. Why? Because he couldn't wait on God. Chuck Sundahl, he, he says that waiting is the hardest discipline of the Christian life. Psalm 37, 7, in the scriptures it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. See, most of us, we don't want to be still in our busy, busy, busy life, and we don't want to wait. We can't even wait at a yellow light for crying out loud, or a four-way stop for that matter. We want our answers, we want our results, we want everything in our lives right now, and yet scripture says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And I think when we take a step back and we look at where we're going for the next three months, this story speaks to us on many different levels, and perhaps the greatest lesson has to do with the importance of waiting on God. You know, we can look at this truth both positively and negatively if you want. That the, those who wait upon the Lord, though it's difficult, in the end will not be disappointed. And secondly, those who impatiently try to force God's hand may get what they want in the process, but they're going to lose everything that they value in life. So my question to you as we come close to the end is, what are you willing to trade in life in order to get what you want? What are you willing to trade in life in order to get what you want? Are you willing to trade your family? Are you willing to trade your marriage? Are you willing to trade your friends, your career, your children, your purity, your integrity? Or let me put it another way. What kind of deal are you willing to make in order to force God's hand? Remember, there are no shortcuts with God. I think every shortcut turns out to be a dead-end street, and whoever takes those shortcuts ends up wandering aimlessly through life. If, if you're going to write down anything, write these down in big letters, that God doesn't need your help to fulfill his will in your life. God doesn't need your help to fulfill his will in your life. And I think that's the number one lesson of the story. If he wants to give a blessing, he can give it. If he wants to elevate you, he can do it. If he wants to raise you up to a position of great power, he can do it. 
If God wants Jacob to have that birthright, there's no way Esau can keep it. If God wants Jacob to have the blessing, there is no way that Esau can get it. If God wants Jacob to have the blessing, there's no way Isaac can give it to Esau. There's no way. It can't happen. Not in a million years. God doesn't need Jacob's help or Rebecca's either. And if God wants to, he can work a miracle or he can arrange the circumstances or he can simply change Isaac's mind or strike him dead. Go figure that one. And God is infinitely creative when it comes to finding ways of accomplishing his purposes on earth. And you got to think about that when your request is help. My family needs prayer. But when we interfere, when we try to help God out, we only mess things up. And the ironic truth is that whenever we try to help God out, we may in fact get whatever it was we wanted, but the price is way too high. A few years ago, I preached the Lord's Prayer. And when I came to the phrase, thy will be done, I called it the hardest prayer you'll ever pray. We, we, we see that every time we do our, our baby dedications, when we ask the parents, are you willing to accept God's will for your child no matter what? And when you know some of the parents in our community and what they have gone through and what they are going through and they answer yes to that question, it rips your heart out. Excuse me. See, too often we want to fix things and, and do things and not wait for God. We don't want to wait for thy will be done. And we sort of become Jacob in our own right and we try to force God's hand and, and he responds, really, he does. He responds, okay, then, then, then your will be done. But if it's your will, then you're going you're gonna to be sorry. And in the end, you, you'll never regret saying, Lord, thy will be done in your way, in your time, and according to your plan. So let's make today very practical. If you're like most people, you probably have a hard time waiting for things in life that you really, really care about, like familial issues. So maybe you can take a moment, maybe you can take a time, but you can fill in these three things is that with God's help, I commit myself to wait patiently in the Lord in the following areas. What are three areas in your life where you need God's help for you to wait patiently? Where you need God's help for you to wait patiently. And whatever your situation is, you may be tempted to say, you know, God, you're not moving fast enough. Or you know, listen, if you're there, you need to wait. You need to trust God. You need to be still before the Lord. You need to listen to his voice. You need to let God speak to you. I put a prayer on Facebook this morning. I always do a little Sunday prayer, and so I found a video, and I put it on Facebook. I, if you just get onto my Facebook and, or Instagram or Twitter, just uh, watch and listen to the words of that prayer. But let me say this, in spite of what we're talking about, help my family needs prayer, your family cannot change if you stay the same. You hear me? Your family cannot change if you stay the same. So when we read the scriptures, we see that the Bible is constantly affirming movement. The Bible affirms growth and change. 
And that's one of the reasons why here at Soul Sanctuary, change is something that assumed in, in people's lives. That, you know, we all need to change. And the Bible affirms us to always keep on moving and not to remain stuck, not to remain fixed, and not to remain, I'm in a stuck place of spirituality. No, we need to be growing. The Bible says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That, that word, continue to work out, it's a verb, category. Katergaz, katergaz, oh my. That's my Greek. And so there's a sense of action here in the, in the word. It's to work it out, to do something which has results. And so in our faith walk, they, we need to work this out on a daily level. And maybe you're thinking, you know, uh, I would love for my family to change. And even if it was a good one, you know, I think we all wish our families get better. But you're family can't change. Your family can't progress if you stay the same. So stop pointing fingers. Interesting passage of scripture in Luke 6, 46, Jesus turns around and he's talking to the people around him. He says, why do you call me Lord? And, and you don't do what I say. See, many Christians love to sing to God and many Christians love to talk, you know, and, and witness and say anything. But when they get home into the day to day, they find themselves in a bad spot because they're not doing the things that Jesus has asked us to do. And I'm convinced that God wants us to prosper. I'm not talking a prosperity theology. I'm not talking about a Cadillac in your God, in driveway. I'm saying God wants us to prosper and prosper us. And it's not our prosperities or our blessings that attract others to our faith in Christ. It's how we deal with the issues that we're dealt with in life. And we're all dealt different cards. Life, maybe it's loss, maybe it's pain, maybe it's suffering, and the list goes on. It's in those things that demonstrate the life-changing, triumphant power of Christ in us. It's our confidence in spite of fear. It's our, our hope in spite of despair. It's our determination in spite of our sickness. It's our faith in spite of the prognosis. It's our patience in spite of the delay. It's our peace in spite of the conflict. It's our love in spite of the hatred. It's our forgiveness in spite of the vengeance. It's our calm in spite of the chaos. It's the kindness in spite of the hostility, it's our goodness. In spite of the meanness, it's our generosity. In spite of the need, it's our joy. In spite of the sorrow. And it's manifested in us as believers, and that's what makes this gospel, this serving Jesus, attractive. You know, coming to faith doesn't fix our problems. That's a lie. But coming to faith gives us this joy and this peace in spite of our problems. And something that we can rely on, someone who we can rely on to take us through the day. So I leave you with this sentence. We must rise above our dysfunctions to love and support each other. And that actually, my friends, it starts with you and your prayer for your family. So every Sunday, when you come here, you put your prayer requests on the cross. And let's see, well, whoever comes and shares, maybe will be sharing your story. 
We'll talk about infertility. We'll talk about uh, divorce. We'll talk about separation. We'll talk about many other issues that affects all the families. And you're going to hear stories from people who are walking through it right now. So bring a friend. Bring a family member. And let's see God beginning to answer prayer. Let's pray. I just want to invite you to do me a favor. Maybe you're here today and you're just kind of going, I, I hear what you're saying, dude, but I don't know about this whole God thing. That's all right. Maybe you're just at a critical component and you're just, you want to know more. Let me just invite you to do a simple process of just saying, being honest with yourself and going, I just, I want to know more about who Jesus is. I want to know about this God that you're talking about. If that's you, just put up your hand and put it down real quick and let me pray for you, will you? Thank you. For the rest of us, you identify with the fact that our families, your family needs help. And you just simply want to say, Jerry, just remember me in that process. You want to put up your hand? Yeah. Yeah, there's hands going up all over the place. And maybe that family is just you and your immediate. Maybe it's a little distant, but know that we're praying for you. God, I just pray for people who've walked in today and maybe they don't know much about you or anything else, but I pray that your hand would be upon them. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Guide them, direct them. Speak to them, Lord, in a way that they would know that they have met the Creator. And Father, I thank you that you are a distinct God, and I thank you that your presence does fill us, and that you can convict us and encourage us and call us to mission, and that we can meet you anywhere and everywhere. We could fly to the other side of the earth, and you're there, and it's an amazing blessing, and may we just not take that for granted. And as different people here have just raised a hand, I just pray, and my prayer is that we would be a desperate people for the presence of God. First of all, for the presence of God in our lives, but then for the presence of God in our families. And may we realize just how desperate we are. And so, God, we pray for healing in our families, that they may he- that, that healing may begin, though, with us. And may we be a people who practice the presence of God. So God, help us. And may we approach your throne of grace with confidence and may we enter in it all the time because we love you. And we know that you love us. And so we ask this in your son's name.